I'm going to ask you to turn with me in the Word of God this morning to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. The verse will be uh, verses 1 through 9. Will you stand now of respect for the holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word of the living God? Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some of the wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. Well, they stirred up the crowds and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received the pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. You may be seated. I know I've said it before. I'll say it again in the future, and I'm saying it right now. One thing I really like to hear about are people's personal stories of conversion. Nothing more exciting, more blessed, more interesting, more soul-nourishing than the good news of somebody's personal conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've been listening to them for a long time. One of the things that I began to appreciate, though, several years ago, or perhaps quite longer than that, was that there is a distinction to be made when listening to such stories. And that distinction is this, that some people are really good at telling stories of conversion, and other people have a really good conversion story. There's a difference. For example, I remember a man telling me, oh, very long time ago, about his conversion story, and kind of went like this, his life was in ruin. That's usually where they start. His life was in ruin uh, due to um, drug addiction and um, sexual promiscuity. All of the relationships in his life were brought to uh, basically utter shambles. And he was despairing about it all. So uh, one Sunday morning he woke up and he was feeling quite uneasy. So he started milling about aimlessly on a walk. And he came upon a church with its doors open. So he went in. And he sat down in the pew not expecting anything. And he began to hear the, the liturgy with all of its scriptures. And he said as he sat there and he listened to the Word of God read, uh, something began to happen. He perceived it. And he said in the midst of it all, he surrendered himself to the Lord. Now mind you, I said there is a distinction to be made between being good at telling conversion stories and having a really good conversion story. 
Because the punchline of the story is that the man claimed to have been saved by hearing the, read of word, the reading of the Word of God, which was all in Spanish that morning. Mind you, he didn't speak a lick of it because he was a purebred gringo. And to him, that was the proof that he had a real conversion is somehow God communicated to him through Spanish when he didn't understand it at all. I always thought I smelled a dead fish in that. One of the reasons why is because when God saves somebody, He speaks to them through the Word of God in the language they understand. In fact, the Apostle Paul says it plainly in, in 1 Corinthians 14. He said that the preaching or the prophesying of the Word is to be in the language of those who hear, and if it's not, it is to be translated because he says this, otherwise how will he, be, how will he come to conviction of the truth? See, that's how God works. God uh, nowhere promises, the gospel and the word of God nowhere promises that in salvation, God sort of just bypasses the mind and goes straight to the emotions of the heart. And somehow, against all odds, brings somebody to salvation. The word of God is very clear that when God works upon a heart, he begins so by working upon the mind. Truth has to be understood. And so when we hear stories of, that are good conversion stories, they're usually something like this. I knew I was broken. I knew my life was in disarray. I was in personal ruin. And as I kept listening to the Word, I came under a sense of the fear of the Lord. I began to understand something about my sin. I began to understand that I was an offense to God because of my disobedience and the way I was living. And then I heard the gospel that, that God's in the business of forgiving sinners. That God loves me because I'm in Christ if I exercise faith unto Him by salvation. You see, when we hear stories like that, we begin to understand that's not somebody good at telling a conversion story. That's somebody who has a good conversion story. Because God operated upon them by grace. He took the Word and He brought it convincingly to the mind and persuaded the heart by grace and the operation of the Holy Spirit. Now, as you think about those categories, come into our text here, and one of the things that you can see is that Luke is not good at telling a conversion story. Luke tells a good conversion story here. And the way the Apostle Paul summarizes the record which Luke leaves for us here in Acts chapter 17, he summarizes it just a shade differently in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. He says uh, about the Thessalonians that you turn from idols to the living God. You turn from idols to the living God and to serve Him. See, at the beginning of the conversion story is the turning from idols to God. That is where every conversion story begins. Turning from sin and self and self-reliance, man-made religion, to God Himself. But the testimony which authenticates it is that a person not only had a good religious experience, but it is authenticated and certified to be true because their life now is lived in allegiance to Jesus Christ. 
And that's always how Scripture speaks. Yes, we always uh, affirm the fundamental fact that, that this conversion is all by grace. We don't want to undermine that. We don't want to uh, pretend that that's, uh, that's somehow undermined by what we say next. But we always say this, that if a person has truly received Christ into salvation, Christ puts His stamp upon that person's life by bringing them to Himself and leading them into allegiance to Him. And that's precisely what is the main point of our text here. We know that from... Uh, Interpreting Luke, uh, Acts 17, the words of Luke here over against 1 Thessalonians 1, we can piece things together. We can say that true conversion comes as an operation of divine grace. True conversion comes as a result of an operation of divine grace, and it calls us to rationally understand our allegiance is to be Christ, to, to Christ. And so we're going to divide that in two parts, an, an operation of divine grace through preaching, True conversion is an operation of divine grace through preaching. The true conversion is an intellectual response to the challenge of the gospel, which is separation from idols and allegiance to Christ. So we come into our text thinking about this true conversion being an operation of divine grace through preaching, and we have to take both parts here. We need to think about a true conversion being an operation of grace through preaching, and then how does it become an operation of grace? Well, that's through the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin with the preaching part of it. The gospel came to Thessalonica through preaching. And before we get to the message and the method here, we think about the context. And I wonder if you felt like you were kicking rocks as you read through verse 1. Uh, it seems odd to us, I guess in some way, to read in verse 1 here, that they were traveling through uh, places whose names we can hardly pronounce. Amphipolis. Yeah, probably haven't thought about that in a while. They went to Amphipolis and Apollonia. When you hear that, it might as well be Oz to you because you don't think about those cities. And why it's interesting to us is what is in the backdrop of our text, first of all. Remember what's in the backdrop of our text is, is that vision of the Apostle Paul in Macedonia. Or rather, he was in Troas. He, he had left uh, Lystra, and he went west, and God said, go north. And went north, God said, go west. And he led him to Troas, and there he has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come on over and help us. Well, as they conferred with one another, they decided God was calling them to Macedonia, so they went to Philippi. And what happened went to Philippi? Everything went wrong. except for a couple of very important conversions, we could say. But the rest of it was really hard. It ends with the apostles being beaten and jailed and then unceremoniously being asked to leave. Now, you've got to think that as the apostle took each aching step down the road from Philippi, first of all, he knew that he was under call from God, and second of all, he knew that he was headed into something that wasn't going to be easy. So you can imagine the whole way he's walking, he's praying. I don't think Paul was sitting out to have another Philippian experience, right? So he's praying. He bypasses two cities, which really would have been good cities to preach in. Both Amphipolis and Apollonia were large cities and significant cities, but he doesn't do that. Several days later, as he walks down this well-known Roman highway, the Via Ignacia, he ends up in Thessalonica. And it's a significant city. 
For the age, it was a very large city, probably 200,000 in population. Situated on a, on a harbor, was a major seaport, which means that it was robust economically, it was a city full of trade. It was called the Mother of Macedonia by one of the Greek poets. It was the city where uh, the sister of Alexandria the Great lived. It had a tremendous pedigree and heritage. And, and the Romans, even though they conquered it, they revered it because they revered its history. So they permitted them to be Roman subjects, but to, but to live like Greeks. They had such respect for this place. So it uh, seems that the Lord led him to a significant location. Perhaps another reason why the Lord led him there was because there was a synagogue there which suggests a substantial amount of Jews. So we learn about the place where he went, and now we think about the very location where he began his ministries. You see it in verse 2. We're told, according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them. Now, the impression that you get here as you read from the book of Acts that Paul was only there for three large days. But you read over in Philippians that more than once the Philippians gave him money, that you read in 1 Thessalonians 2 that Paul worked as a day laborer there. You read that a whole church was formed, there was enough time for elders and pastors to be raised up. I think it was significantly longer than three weeks. We'll remember that as we think about the composition of the congregation and the testimony that Paul brings about it. One of the things that strikes me about Paul's summary of his ministry there is that he said the most of the congregation, the bulk of the congregation, were people who had turned from idolatry, which suggests to us that it was a, it was a vibrant ministry to unbelievers and to people who'd never heard the Word of God before. So that's the context of his preaching. And one of the things that I draw from it by way of application, I know it's way early, we normally don't do that, but one of the things that I think we should marvel at is we see Paul meander and wind his way along the, the, the coastline with all of its hills through Amphipolis and Apollonia, all the way down to Philippi, is this man was faithful to his calling from the Lord. He knew he had a call from God. He knew unmistakably that God had sent him not only to be a missionary, but He'd sent him on this calling to go to Macedonia. And the one thing that he began to perceive in all of it was a very hard and difficult and painful calling. And yet we're struck this morning that he persevered. He was discouraged, but he wasn't defeated. And so John Calvin looks at it like this, and he says, by this testimony of Paul persevering in his calling, he says, we are instructed in the invincible fortitude of mind and the impatient enduring of the cross, which ought to characterize us as believers in this life. Have you had obstacles lately? Have you known sorrows lately? Have you had physical ailments lately? Have you had difficulty in the way, in the path of serving Jesus Christ? But one of the encouragements you take from the Word of God and the testimony of what you read here, how he was working his way through all these, uh, uh, these cities located on a dusty trail, is that even in the midst of all of these difficulties, in the midst of the way of serving Jesus Christ, fraught as it is, sometimes with all of its difficulties and opposition and discouragement, 
The one thing that you take from the fact that Paul successfully winds through those places and ends up in Thessalonica to raise up a church for Christ is that God's grace is sufficient to sustain you in spite of the surprises He sends your way providentially. You see, you're safe in the way of calling this morning. You will be established and strengthened by God in the way of calling this morning. If you have committed yourself to something, cry out to God. He's called you to it. Endure. Persevere. Accept the challenges. One of those great verses of the Old Testament that often comes to mind in the midst of difficulties of work or calling or whatever it is, it's that great verse in Ecclesiastes 9.2. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Because if it was significant enough for God to call you to it, it's significant enough for you to soldier. It's significant enough for you to persevere and to glorify God in it. So we see the context, now we see the fact of his preaching. And, you know, it's obvious that Paul preached here. He looks back at it um, in 1 Thessalonians 1.5 and he says, uh, You know, brothers, that our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power. He doesn't elaborate on his preaching, he just says it merely came in word. The gospel came to them and it came in word. But thankfully, we have the testimony here of Luke in Acts chapter 17. And what Luke does is pile up a series of terms which reinforce that this was a preaching of the gospel. That's how salvation came. Look at your terms here. In verse 2, you have the term, He went into the Sabbath and He reasoned with them. Remember the old story about the fella who didn't speak a lick of Spanish, understanding it all, or not understanding, but somehow God working through it. Put that up against this verse. We're told here that he reasoned with people who were unbelievers. And the word means a logical discourse. It means a, a reasoned, rational unfolding. And then you have two more terms. In verse 3, explaining and giving evidence. Explain literally means to make open, but metaphorically it's a word that's regularly used in Greek to uh, refer to an explanation, an exposition of a topic or idea or concept or piece of text or literature by means of explanation. You're told here that he gave evidence. This is the language of argument. You know what's at the... The bedrock of an argument is a claim. You, you know this because you see commercials. This brand of uh, washing detergent is better than brand X. And successful commercials don't just say that. They show you the visual proof. One gets your clothes wider than the other. That's an argument. The claim is this works better. Proof is this. That's what Paul is saying here. Luke tells us that, that Paul uh, established claims by means of presenting evidence. By the way, all three of these terms are used uh, frequently in ancient Greek rhetorical manuals. This is the language of rhetoric, reason, debate, argumentation. 
So he preached. And I want you to notice here the substance of his preaching, and it begins uh, with being bound up in that phrase in verse 2. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, we've already positioned you in the place where he preached. It was the synagogue. And in the synagogue, they didn't have Gideon Bibles. Y'all know what a Gideon Bible is, right? It's a New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs attached to the back. They didn't have that. The synagogue has the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings, and that's precisely the Scriptures that are in view here. Paul took up the Old Testament and he explained it. Same thing that Jesus said was about him. Luke 24, 44, he says, These things are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So the substance of, of Paul's preaching was the Word of God. And I want you to see here the elements of that message. You're told here, he explained and gave evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. We have multiple elements here. First of all, Christ, he said, had to suffer. This word pascha is a reference to the cross of Christ. Jesus Himself uses this word to explain what would happen to Him before it actually happened. He said in Mark 8.31, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. So you're thinking back about the Old Testament. Where did Paul find that message? Well, it's in many places, but chief among them would have been Isaiah 53. Remember the story of the Lamb led to the slaughter bearing the iniquities of the world. Gospels in the Old Testament. The cross is in the Old Testament. You're also told here that he preached that Christ rose from the dead, from the Old Testament. You're also told here that he proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ. That's very significant. That's very significant because when Paul speaks to these Jews in that synagogue about a man named Jesus, you can be sure that they knew who Jesus was. In Acts 2.22, as uh, Peter stands up before this Jewish audience in Jerusalem, an audience which uh, was from the nations, devout Jewish believers from over the whole world, it says, He said to them, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through through Him in your midst as you yourselves know. Think of that. He says to Jews who had been scattered around the world, who showed up for Pentecost on that day and experienced or at least witnessed the phenomena of Pentecost, he said, Jesus, you know. In other words, word uh, about Jesus was electrifying. It, it, It spread throughout, not just Palestine, but throughout the world. Think about this. This is one of the things that I love to go back to when I think about the gospel message and when I think about whether it's something I can rely on, as I think about whether it's a message I can live life based upon, as I think about it, whether this is a message which I can trust is a saving message, I go back to these statements of Scripture. Jesus, whom you know. He wasn't some obscure person that no one had ever heard about. 
Think about who know him. All of northern Galilee at that day was electrified by the knowledge of Jesus. People were bringing uh, those who were uh, in need of healing, who were uh, broken physically from all over the region and even from Syria. He preached all over the hillsides there. Down in Jerusalem, everyone knew about him because they were resisting him. So the religious leaders knew about him. The political leaders knew about him. The Roman governor knew about him. The Roman soldiers knew about him. When you say the name Jesus, it was a name that people knew. Highly significant then that when Jesus preaches Christ, he says, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. Person and work of Jesus Christ was the subject of Paul's preaching. And I want you to notice that word had because it's a significant word. Christ had to suffer. You see, uh, Paul proclaims the suffering and resurrection of Jesus Christ as something that was divinely preordained. He uses a word here in the original that speaks not just of necessity, but a word uh, or a situation that is necessary because God had intended it. So why did Christ suffer? Was this message of Jesus being the Messiah a cleverly arranged story that was put together after the fact, whipped up by some of his disciples to feel like they gave significance to somebody who seemed to be a pretty good guy. No, it's all here. It had to happen. It was divinely foreordained to happen that Christ would suffer and that he would die and that he would rise again from the Savior. It was by eternal divine design, Paul says, Jesus did these things. So that's the gospel message. It was a message grounded in the Word of God, and the warrant for them believing it was because the Bible said it was so. I started thinking about that. never ceases to amaze me when we think about the Scripture and its relevance to our life. Here it is. If Paul could appeal to Scriptures which were uh, 1,500 years old or older and say that... um, the message he was preaching uh, to that audience of his day was a message that had been forecasted, written of, prophesied about thousands of years beforehand, then it surely means that us today, as we sit here and we listen to the Word of God, that it's as relevant for us now as it was for an audience then that was listening to old scriptures. Do you have warrant this morning to believe these things because they're in the Word of God? Remember, we uh, thought about this this morning in the singing of the Psalms, that one reason why Scripture calls us to worship the Lord is because His truth never fails. So, how does true conversion work? Well, first of all, it comes as uh, a divine operation to the preaching of the Word, but that's not enough to account for what happened here. So that brings us to our second point. True conversion is a divine operation as the gospel comes in power by the Spirit of God. I want you to see the testimony of Luke, and we'll think about the testimony of Paul. But it's right before you in your Bibles this morning in verse 4. You're told here, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and along with a 
large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. I want you to key on that, that word persuaded. It's a term, again, taken from Greek rhetoric. It means to be convinced intellectually by means of argumentation. They were persuaded. It makes sense that a word like this would be used to describe their response because Paul treated preaching of the Word of God like an argument. An argument made from Scripture. The result is intellectual conviction of the truth. Their minds were convinced. But how does that happen spiritually? I think it's a relevant question to ask because I'll tell you why. Two unbelieving persons can sit down and hear the same exact gospel message and one can walk away in unbelief having understood what was said and the other walks away in faith having understood but believing. So what's the difference? The difference is this. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. The Word of God. The gospel came not only in word, but also in power. That is, in the Holy Spirit and with much assurance. You see, Paul explains how it is that this message, when it's properly delivered as an explained word, aiming at intellectual understanding, how does someone believe? by the sheer force and raw power of their intellect? Because they're better at doing syllogisms than others? No. It comes when that digested and understood Word of God is taken home to the mind and to the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's some backstory here on why Paul says it as he does in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Our gospel came not to you in word only, but in power that is in the Holy Spirit. You see, what he wants to accent there is something powerful occurred alongside or with the preaching of the word. Something divinely powerful was used. Why does he do that? Because as you're going to see in a moment in our text, after he preached there for some time, a a group of people drove him out of town. As is tradition. Paul preaches the word. Paul gets kicked out of town. And wouldn't you know that soon after he left, come in some false brethren who um, tell these Thessalonians, these poor idolaters, who'd never known a day of Jesus in their life until Paul ministered to them through the Word, that the thing that happened to them wasn't really true. It was nothing more than being persuaded of something by the tricks of a magician. It's interesting, if you go and read the language and the concepts and terminology that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians that's taken straight out of the bag of tricks used by ancient charlatans. That's what he's being accused of. So one of the things that he has to do is he pastors these saints from a distance through a letter. As he says, I want you to understand something. That thing which changed your life, which turns your world upside down and inside out, wasn't as a result of a powerful presentation. 
as reasoned as it all was, the reason why you believe wasn't just that. He says, why did you change? Because the Word of God came in power. And a properly translated English text would say, because the Holy Spirit. You see, the thing that causes people to change and to undergo this great experience of spiritual conversion is not because they are arm-wrestled mentally into the kingdom of God or arm-wrestled into believing in Jesus. We don't bypass the intellect and the mind, but the Spirit of God takes that word and He drives it into the heart like an arrow into its target. When that happens, that's the gospel coming in power. When that happens, it's a divine operation. And when that happens, when the Word is preached and that person understands it and they know the knowledge of their sin and their misery and God's wrath and judgment to come, and yet Jesus is the Savior for that through His shed blood on the cross and the Spirit takes all of that and He brings it home to their heart. That's when you get conversion, which is true because it's based upon a divine operation through the preached gospel. This is what happens, and this is what we're learning about in our text this morning. But the second thing that we learn from our text now is that true conversion is an intellectual response to gospel challenge. True conversion is an intellectual response to gospel challenge. What we want to see here is that a conversion is authenticated and confirmed by not just saying I believe, but that belief is manifested now in how we live. You see, the gospel brings a challenge to people in their brokenness. And the gospel doesn't say, "Ah, you're saved now, forget how you live. You got fire insurance, put it in your back pocket. If you want some Jesus later on, that's fine with us, but you can go on just like you are. It sounds stupid, but there's a whole swath of evangelical Christianity that preaches that. That's not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach, yes, salvation is 100% by grace. But that change, that experience of Christ will be authenticated by how you live. It will be authenticated that you turn from idols to serve the living God. That's what's in stake here. Intellectual change. Remember, he reasoned with them. I've already been over the words, so I don't have to see them again. But, but all of the terms here show that there was a real challenge presented to them. I got to believe that all of this means then, that as Paul preached Christ and the necessity of his suffering and the necessity of his resurrection based upon divine foreordination, that he's contrasting that with how they are now. Believe me, people in that world, they lived a horrible life. Paganism is is a horrible way to live. People hated the gods. Go read the texts. All they would do, the worship that they had to do, the incantations, the washings, the sacrifices, all that, but they were terrified of the gods because they never knew when they might turn on them because the feelings of the gods were well known to be fickle. Paul preached Christ. He said, yes, we're preaching a Savior and a Lord and a King. If you come to Him, there has to be a change of life. 
All of that is summarized in this great word the Apostle Paul used. And I keep citing the text, 1 Thessalonians 1.9. You turned to God from idols. That turn is a, is a U-turn. It speaks of somebody going down the road of life and then experiencing a 180 degree turn in the other direction. Metaphorically, it's typically used of changed mind. This is what Paul said happened to them. They changed their mind about the idols that they were worshiping and serving, realizing it was all vanity and emptiness. What happened when the gospel came to them in power? And what they learned from that intellectual challenge of the gospel is there had to be separation and allegiance. The way that's drawn out in the details of our text is interesting, so I want you to look at it. Let's look at uh, verse 5 and following. The Jews becoming jealous and taking along some of the wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason they were seeking to bring them out to the people when they did not find them they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities shouting these men who have upset the world have come here also and Jason has welcomed them they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying there is another king Jesus This is all fairly straightforward at the top part of the text, isn't it? They went and they found a bunch of scoundrels who uh, were unprincipled people who, if you gave them a a six-pack of beer, would do whatever you wanted. So here they, they gather up the crowd of people and they make it look like it's a huge public outcry when it really wasn't. These people probably didn't even know Paul or anything about the church. But this was an intentional uh, plot hatched and designed by unbelieving Jews. And so they get this crowd and they whip them up and then they look around for Paul and Silas and they can't find him. So they go to the house of Jason because they knew he was harboring them. And uh, they pull Jason and some believers out of the house and they take them right before the magistrate. Sound familiar? It's exactly what happened in Philippi, right? The unbelievers ga- uh, gathered up Paul and Silas, and they took them before the city officials because they wanted blood. Now notice the charges. There's three of them. The first is sedition and insurrection. Those who've been upsetting the world came here also. That, that's, that means political rebellion, and that's one thing that Romans don't like at all. No one liked it. Political rebellion. The fact that they say they've been upsetting the world tells us that they'd heard testimony about Philippi and probably other places. They were revolutionaries. That's a charge. Secondly, they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Now they're appealing to public religion, patriotism, civil order, all of the things that were appealed to over in uh, Philippi. But finally, you get to the nub of the complaint here. And it's interesting how people will tell you that they understood your message by how they summarize it. Because this is how they end up saying it. For them, they thought they were bringing an indictment. But but to me, there's gold in this statement. 7b, saying there's another king, Jesus. Notice that they perceived the message with its implications. 
Now, the reason why it formed an indictment, because Greek-speaking people called Caesar Basileus. That means king. And so the way that they're trying to ingratiate themselves to uh, the public officials to get them to be sympathetic to the charge is to say, you don't understand what's going on here. They're not just attacking you. They're trying to say, there's another rival king. And his name ain't Caesar. It's Christ. Well, that's when people normally start tearing their hair out in the book of Acts. So that's what you get. The rest of the story unravels in a way that's really not that significant for our purposes this morning. But what it does do is it sets up the table for understanding what we're talking about here, how the gospel presents an intellectual challenge to separate and to show allegiance to Christ. I take it again from uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.9. They turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Notice the message of separation. If Jesus Christ is Lord, you can't worship something else. They turned from idols. When the gospel was preached and was consciously understood, they discerned the challenge of the gospel, which is that they have to leave their old life behind. That is the challenge of the gospel always. If I'm saved, I can't live the same way anymore. I've got to separate from my old life of sin, my practices, my system of thinking which was incorrect. This is always the challenge of the gospel, to separate and to keep separating. And the hard part is that as much as we try to do that, we just keep getting brought back in, right? Because that old sinful nature still clings to us. The world keeps calling out to us. Our own sinful desires keep crying out to us that they're famished and they need to be fed. So this is always the challenge of the gospel here, the call to separation. But it's not just negative, it's something positive. You turned from idols to the living God to serve Him. That's the allegiance part. The allegiance part of the challenge of the gospel is, here's Christ. Oh, He's your Savior. But remember what Christ also means, He's Lord. That's what Peter said, He is both Lord and Christ. And he's no Palestinian local deity. So that's how the ancient world worked, you know. You could have your God, and he's good wherever you live, but if you go to the next state over, the next country over, the next region over, they have their gods, they do what they do with those gods over there. We'll leave them alone. Local deities. The Bible never speaks that way of the Lord. He is the maker of the heavens and the earth. There is no God besides me. So if Jesus is the Christ, He's Lord, and His dominion is from the sea to the ends of the earth, it doesn't matter whether you're in Rome or San Francisco or Orange County or New York City or across the globe, wherever you go, Christ is Lord. And He's the one that owns your allegiance. They were right. Paul did preach another king. 
Paul did preach somebody else as king over against Caesar. That means this morning, people of God, that is the intellectual challenge of the gospel for those who've turned. They know they're turning from something because that old life was empty. It was crushing them. It was bringing them down. It wasn't satisfying. Now they're coming to Christ who's Savior. And as they come to Him as Savior, they come to Him as Lord. That's for us this morning. And I know that there's always great challenge to that. So as we conclude our message this morning, I want to think through that last idea. See if we can bring it home to remind ourselves this morning. What is this allegiance to Christ? What is this allegiance to Christ that we speak of? We know this is part of the message because of the very way Paul frames in their religious experience. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They had the beginning. They had the authentication. They were serving. So what does it look like? And I thought, well, maybe this morning uh, we can go back over the book of Thessalonians. You could just listen along a minute and just see how the apostle charts out what this looks like. So just listen here, because we're almost at the end of our message, but it's important that we are refreshed this morning in what it means to show allegiance to Christ. So if you're thinking through Paul's admonitions in the second part of that short book of Thessalonians, it begins in chapter 4 in a very sweeping statement where he calls upon believers to abound more in their walk. Listen to this. We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, you excel still more. Paul was praising them. They've done, they've done a good job. But he says, excel still more in your walk. That's a challenge every day, isn't it? I'm supposed to be growing into a better Christian. Sadly, it's not true. I fail. But this is the admonition that doesn't change. The next admonition he gives in verse 3. This is the will of God. People sometimes say, I just wish I knew what the will of God was. Well, Paul says, here's the will of God. Abstain from sexual immorality. Don't have sex outside of marriage. Keep your relationship pure. The next one is love of the brethren. Verse 9. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, uh, you do practice it towards the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, excel more. He said, you've been loving the brethren. Continue to do it. The next one is keep an orderly life. Verse 11. Lead a quiet life. Attend to your own business and work with your hands. He brings it over to the church world and things that feel more spiritual. Here's his admonition. Live peaceably with the elders of the church. Verse 12, chapter 5. Appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you may esteem them highly in love for their work. Adorn Christian spiritual attitudes and disciplines. Listen to these. Here's the bread and butter of the Christian life. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God for you in Jesus Christ. One last one, and it's huge. It's as if uh, Paul didn't say it already, but now he, he leaves the list here. Live blamelessly. Abstain from every form 
of evil. Now, that was meant to teach you, but I'm sure at the same time, it's a humbling, discouraging list. There's no way somebody listens to that and says, oh, I, I guess I don't need the exhortation to abound more. I'm already there. It's a tough call. But it demonstrates to us that allegiance to Christ that is our calling. You say, well, how do I do this this morning? I, I know I need to, but I feel weak. And the answer seems to me to be bound up with the great statements of the gospel. No better place than to turn than that uh, verse in, in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. The, the gospel came not only in word, but in power. You see, the same power that saves you, uh, God in Christ, the Holy Spirit taking the Word of God and bringing it home to power in your life and to salvation, is the same power which stays with you. Are we weak? Yes. Will we fail? Yes. And that's why we keep looking down below the foundations and the surface of this Christian life to see that foundation which never changes. It's the power of God in Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so, as we think about these things which manifest our allegiance to Christ, the things that we know we have to commit ourselves to, we, we say we can do this in the power of Christ. We can do this because of the grace of Christ. I want you to think about that this morning. What happened to you when you were saved? Something happened to you because God in His mercy poured it out, brought the Word home in power. And so, based upon that act of grace, continue to cry out to the Lord for it. As we do, we'll continue to see how Paul summarizes their spiritual conversion to Christ. You turned, and now you keep on serving the living and true God. May God give us His grace and help. Father Almighty, we thank You for uh, what true conversion is. It's a work which You do. It's humbling. It's joyful. It's powerful for sure. It's a logical work impressing truth upon our minds. And it calls us to something of great purpose and significance. Something far greater than pursuing self-satisfaction. It's a call to serving of the Lord Jesus with full allegiance of heart. So remind us of great gospel truths which lay at the foundation of that. And then seeking your grace and help, Lord, help us to pursue it, just like these brothers and sisters of old did, knowing the power and the joy of the gospel. Hear us, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.